I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How are you doing there? It is David. It is the podcast. We are now in the third week of this lockdown, lockout. I'd like to call it the lock-in. It just sounds something more clandestine, more Irish, more cosy, slightly illegal, all the good stuff. But we'll see how we go. My, we'll see how we go. My family are seem to be tolerating me, which is quite a miracle on their part, Uh there's no massive rows. We seem to be getting on really quite well. Uh, my young fella is doing the leaving cert. Uh, well, he thinks he's doing the leaving cert, but uh, God bless him, he can't focus at all. But, you know, if there was a 620 pointer in FIFA, he would definitely get it. And uh, I was, he was trying to explain to me, Dad, that gamers make more money than economists. So uh, let's, see, let's see how we go. I'm joined, as always, every week by your man himself, What's the crackhead? Hey, how's it going? I'm cooped up here. Jim Larkin's lockout and all that. Well, listen, Jim Larkin, one of, yeah, maybe we, we, we might actually, by the end of this, discuss whether your man Murphy, who was Jim Larkin's opponent, was oh, yeah. badly done by in history. But that's for another podcast. Well, yeah, I'd like to hear that. But yeah, anyway, yeah. here is... How's this going? Ah, it's grand. All the girls are great. Our big problem is uh, on the day that we were all locked in, our dishwasher broke. And, oh, no. Uh, you know, I don't know when was the last time you washed dishes by hand, but it is a pain in the arse. And I rang a guy and he said, yeah, 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 we'll come out. And of course, then the lock-in and he's not here. So we have another, whatever it is, four, six weeks of washer. And it is at the root of much consternation in the house. Well, you but know, it's... That's a, first it's world a- problems. It is a first world problem, but John, you know, we were brought up in houses with no dishwashers, you know, it's we true. were all brought up in it's houses with no dishes, we were brought up in houses with no colour TVs, but it's interesting you mentioned that about housework, okay, because <laughs> so few people put these together. Do you know probably the most productive invention of the late 20th century? You know, we hear about great innovative things like the internet and yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. Probably the invention that made most difference to the economy was the invention of the washing machine. 
Did you know that? Really? How do you so mean? So if you think about it, right, so the washing <laughs> machine, the humble washing machine, which becomes available in the 1950s and 1960s and into the 1970s, but 1950s, 1960s, revolutionised, revolutionised housework. Right. Now, if you go, so if you go to a developing country, and we might talk about the, these countries later on, what you'll see, and this has been the case for thousands and thousands of years, certainly hundreds Mm. and maybe thousands of years, is that an enormous amount of time for a housewife, for a woman running a house, is spent on lugging clothes to a well to wash and lugging them back. Clothes washing, one of the most time-consuming things that anyone can do. Absolutely, yeah. You invent the, the washing machine in the 50s. You disseminate this very, very widely. People buy them straight away. They're bought, they're bought like nothing else is bought. And what amazing thing happened, right, was that you see an extraordinary shift in female working in the workforce after the washing machine. What happened was the washing machine saved so much time yeah. for the average housewife that this liberated loads of time millions of women went into the workforce. They would never have done so had it not been for the washing machine. This drives up productivity dramatically because the productivity of a country is a function of investment in technology and the labour force. So suddenly the labour force expands. So when you're trying to look at the glory years, okay, of Western Europe and of America, the 50s, 60s Mm. and 70s, and you're trying to identify what was the spark to productivity, what was the spark to the growth rates, why did rates grow so quickly? The humble washing machine is one of the more plausible reasons because women who had been in the house are liberated from housework, they're available for work, they go to work in great numbers. They drive up the productive capacity of the economy. Yeah, yeah. And you see that in GDP and income. So That's amazing, actually. Yeah, that, it's that's interesting. That's really good. Uh, yeah, so, you know, some inventions go unnoticed by mainly male commentators and economists, but actually have a huge, huge impact on society. What do you and mean the, mainly the, male commentators? Because most economists, most economists are blokes and they're looking for very technical, kind of quasi-scientific reasons as to why things happen. But some things happen for very basic reasons, yeah. which is you reduce dramatically the amount of time that women used to spend washing clothes by the invention of a dishwasher. That liberates them. They leave the home. They come into the workforce and suddenly you have, have the women as consumers, as producers, as wage earners. And as economists. As office workers and as economists. Well, as economists, we're getting there. But one of the problems with economics, John, it's, it's extraordinary. Last year, economics was the single biggest undergraduate degree in terms of the amount of people taking it in America. Right. Right. So it's the biggest. So studying economics now is actually the biggest undergraduate degree for most people, which is amazing. That wasn't the yeah. case in my, in my day. That can only be a good thing. Yet, only 28% of people who study economics are women. And that's shocking. That surprises me, actually. That, is that really surprises yeah. me. And uh, economics is very, very male-dominated. And I think, unfortunately, as a result of that, has missed lots and lots of social factors. So, 
you know, female economists are still very much the minority. At uh, Kilconomics, we try to get as many women as possible. It's getting yeah, there, yeah. but it still is the, one of the lowest represented for women academic pursuits in the world. Mm, that's so incredible. But we'll change that. The yeah. podcast will hope, hopefully change that. But the dishwasher thing I find really interesting there, the, the role of the dishwasher, because I suppose, you know, during the 50s and 60s in particular in America, it was the, the dishwasher and the fridge and the car and the lawnmower and, and all these... There were new technologies. And it's, I always find it interesting when you talk about technology and tech and, and all the rest. After a while, it just becomes a dishwasher and not well, technology, about, if you know what I mean. Well, OK, so if you think about this, there's, there's the most precious resource that everybody has is time. Yeah. So consequently, time saving inventions have enormous ramifications for societies that sometimes aren't appreciated at the time. And interestingly, all those inventions of the 50s and 60s, those domestic appliance inventions, were time-saving at their core. Now, interestingly, a lot of the new inventions, such as the smartphone, are mm-hmm. time-consuming inventions. Think about it, right? So if you're trying to look for an invention that has a massive increase on economic growth and economic productivity, what you're looking for is inventions that save you time, okay? Because then that time is liberated to do something else. Mm. If the inventions of a certain generation are time-consuming, which is, for example, scrolling on Twitter or Facebook, it's actually robbing you of time. Yeah, it is. Then maybe this is one of the reasons why productivity in the countries have actually collapsed and not gone up. It's an interesting idea. We might that's, pursue it a little bit more. Yeah, that's, that's curious. But speaking of first world problems then, just getting back to the coronavirus thing, given that... I love every- you said the coronavirus thing. Ting. <laughs> the coronavirus thing, man. <laughs> but given that every, every country is different and therefore every economy is different... I'm curious about, in terms of the Irish economy, how well our economy is structured in order to survive and probably more importantly, how, how well we will revive. Yeah, no, it's a very good question, John. No, it's a really good question. So let's, let's deal with the, the coronavirus. Is that the spending that we are doing right now to cushion the blow of this unbelievably unexpected shock to the system, that the spending that the government is doing does not lead to a hike in taxation in the future Mm. or a hike in debt payments in the future. So we need to ring-fence this spending because what would be ridiculous, John, is if spending that was encouraged to save people on the health service, spending the health service, was actually used in the future to penalise us it would seem to me to be totally and utterly ridiculous. Yeah. And therefore, so every spending now needs to come with the health warning, which is this will not lead to austerity in the future, nor will it lead to an increase in the debt-GDP ratio because the debt-GDP ratio, when it goes up, John, actually militates against the state building houses and roads and infrastructure in the future. So... The first thing to do is, before I talk about the structure of the economy, is to yeah. understand that it's crucial that central banks, we spoke of this last week, use their awesome power to pay for everything. 
And by that I mean the interesting thing about a central bank, it's one thing people won't tell you, right, is the central bank can just create a big skip, right? <laughs> and into that skip, they can throw all sorts of debts, right, government obligations, etc., and they can bury it in the ground and walk away and nobody will ever know the difference. <laughs> this is, I know it sounds weird, yeah, but this is... It's like burying nuclear the, waste. Does it leak out it's, It is later. like nuclear waste. It is like nuclear waste because debt is like nuclear waste, okay? <laughs> yeah. So it, it, you, can dis, you can make it disappear. This is the reward for having done the right thing for years and years and years and years. This is, you know, you need to deploy policies right now that you would never do in the past. And you have the permission to do so because you have behaved well in the past. So I I always say, like, for example, when the economy is in a massive crisis like this, there's a totally different response to when the economy is normal. So imagine it a bit like, for example, John, a patient, right? A patient who is in ICU is very different to a patient who's not in ICU. A patient who is in ICU demands intensive care treatment, which is completely invasive, quite radical, dangerous, and one-off to save the life. That same patient doesn't need that treatment when they're not in ICU, if they're a little bit sick or if they're normal. And it's exactly the same thing with the economy. We are in the ICU now. We've got to make sure that whatever we do now doesn't have legacy effects. The only way we can do that is use the awesome power of central banking to actually monetize, which means to pay for everything, and say this was a one-off, and we will go back in history and look at this in economic history books and say, that was an unusual period. How did they do it? Oh, they did this. Okay, fine, good, right? Rather than they attacked the patient in ICU with the same rules that were applying when the patient was actually healthy. It doesn't right. make any sense, right? So onto the structure of the economy. The structure of the Irish economy is quite different to other economies, which leaves us slightly more fragile in the downturn and slightly more flexible in the upswing. This is yeah. why we have laid off more people as a percentage of the workforce. Well, have we? than anybody else. Yeah, not much more, but a little bit more. And the reason is the following. The Irish economy is an unusual creature in its structure. The best way to look at the structure of any economy is look at the employment. Who's employed where and what do they do? So in Ireland, as employees, 15% of employees work in the public service. 15%, which is about the same as most Western European countries. 15% of the population of the workforce work for multinationals, which is way above any other comparative Western European country, maybe with the exception of Luxembourg, but it's so small it doesn't really count. Uh, 70% of all workers work in the private sector here, okay? And of the total workforce, 50%, so half of all Irish people work in what are called small are micro companies and they are defined by companies with a labor force with a workforce of less than 50 which is small and less than 10 which is micro right Right. okay Uh, and then on top of that you have the self-employed in ireland that figure is about 15 percent of the total okay so it's an addition 15 percent is about 300,000 people in ireland the self-employed are slightly bigger than elsewhere and i think that's one of the legacies of the 2008 crash, that many people chose self-employment after that 
And what we're finding is there's a big... Lots of people like us, John, soul traders, lots and lots of people come together, do a gig, then work for a while as a team, then work on their own, etc. And that's very, very... That's quite normal in Ireland. You know, it's, it's, it's 15% of the population. So that's the structure. And it means that the structure, particularly the people who work in small companies or micro companies, are more exposed. The reason is, John, those companies don't have cash flow. They don't, they're not sitting on Because of a, their size. Because of their size. Because yeah. it's a kind of precarious existence. You're small. Now, you contrast that with other small countries. For example, take Denmark... Holland, Sweden. These are also small countries mm. in the economic, the global economic sense. And These European countries, and Switzerland. Yeah, actually, you're right, and Switzerland. These, com- these countries do have big companies. So you think, why did they have big companies and we don't? And mm. I think it's because Denmark, Sweden, and Netherlands, although they're small now, were once empires. These were all big, big empires. The Swedes were probably the most aggressive expansionary empire in the 17th century. People forget that. People think Swedes are all nice and ABBA and peaceful and all that that sort of stuff, right? Blonde hair and, and, and carry on. But they were an incredibly aggressive kingdom, constantly having scraps with the Russians, which, as people know, is not a good idea. Yeah, Squaring up to the Russians is not a long term strategy. Doesn't work very well, <laughs> but if you if you think if you think of things like the Hundred Years' War, the big religious wars in the centre of Europe, it was the Swedes who were really involved in that. The Danes had a significant empire. The Danes owned bits of Sweden. They owned Norway. They owned Greenland. They were you know quite an empire in themselves. The Danes, yeah. And of course the Dutch, you know, everyone thinks they're kind of spliff smoking, chilled out. Amsterdam burgers, but they actually had an incredibly aggressive empire. They owned all of Indonesia. They were the first people in South Africa. They were also the first people in India to trade, you know, all that sort of stuff. So these are mercantile uh, countries, while we were a colony at the time. So a mercantile country has know-how and networks Mm. and capital base. The Swiss, on the other hand, have a different story. They created big companies, and I used to work for a Swiss bank, and I was always amazed at how how commercial the people were. Uh, but what it's very interesting, it's religiously based in Switzerland. So the Swiss, particularly around Geneva, are Calvinists, right? Yeah. And Calvinism was the only part of the Christian religion where profit and money was not only not frowned on, but was regarded as essential to live a good life. So the commercially successful man, usually always a man, okay, was also a virtuous man. This is totally at odds with the rest of Christian but philosophy. But these just make you up stuff. Calvinism is kind of make you up Cal- stuff. Calvinism, well, again, if you go down to Geneva, this is where it started. And Calvin's idea was very, very paired back to Christianity mm. and the Protestant work ethic we spoke about and all that sort of stuff, right? And being parsimonious and saving. But having money was not a bad thing. The Catholic ethos, on the other hand, was totally, totally different. So, for example, the Catholic ethos, ethos stems from the parable in the, in the Bible, you know, the, it's easier for the camel to get through the eye of the needle than the rich man to get to heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the essential idea was always against the, uh, the wealthy man. The wealthy man was not a virtuous man and you couldn't have an ethical life and a wealthy life, whereas the Calvinists said you could have an ethical life and a wealthy life. And it goes back to this idea of usury and not being able to charge for interest. So early Christianity and medieval Christianity found charging interest on bank loans was against the law. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. But the Swiss are informed by this extraordinary Calvinism. And this has allowed them become, 
world beaters, they also made the very interesting distinction, I was, I was always intrigued by it, of they'd accept anyone's money in the Swiss banking system. And I remember saying to my boss, and it was really interesting, I said, why does so much money come here to Switzerland? I was a young fellow. And he says, because we let people take money out whenever they want. That was really interesting, because you know the way you think yeah. in a banking crisis, the bank puts up limits to how much money you can take out. Yeah. The Swiss took the opposite way. The Swiss said, we will never not let you take your money out. There will never be any control on you. Why, is that because they have so much of it? No, it's because they understand the idea of trust. They understand how trust works in economics. Trust works by giving people choices and never scaring them into saying, you can't get your money. So the Swiss have always had this idea that if we say to people, we'll take your money, but you can have it back whenever you want, they will deposit more with us, not less. And that has happened. And people deposit money with the Swiss at the lowest rate of interest, and they continue depositing because they know the Swiss will never take it. It's very interesting. Wow. So there you go. Yeah. But the, the structure of the Irish economy now is brittle in the face of corona. And that is because we decided we can't... We're too far behind the game in the 1960s and 70s to build companies like the Danes, for example. So how do we build world-beating companies, locate them here, employ our people if we don't have the capital base and the networks and the know-how? Well, what we do is we just import those companies by reducing their tax. And that's why you have the Pfizer's and the Intel's and all that of this world here. So you're saying we're going to have to rely on the Apple's and Pfizer's, et cetera, et cetera, no. Intel's to, to lift ourselves out of this at the end? Or what's the no, role I, that self-employed will I, play? I'm just saying, what I'm saying is that uh, our economy has a different structure to other economies. And yeah. we cannot depend on multinationals to lift us out because while multinationals massage and change our GDP figures, they still only employ 50% of the workforce, which means that 85% of the workforce is employed in other things. So it has to be coming out together. But that's why we put the economy to sleep now. We try and take as much pain away from people. We borrow in order to get over this particular pandemic. And when we come out the far side, our small companies have been almost in hibernation, John. Uh, What will happen, of course, for the big companies, the multinationals, they'll continue to to export, to produce. Uh, Certainly our tech companies, or not our tech tech companies based here, are doing quite well at the moment, through the Facebooks and Zooms and Googles and whatever, right? But it means that the structure of the Irish economy is a little bit different to other economies. And therefore, the impact of corona, I think, will be slightly more significant on young people and people on lower wages who are working in these more exposed industries. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So tell us this then, the success of the recovery of the Eurozone, does that depend on, you know, everyone in Europe, in the Eurozone, working in lockstep with each other? Or, yeah, or is it down I mean, to ourselves and down to our you know, own well, central I mean, bank? You know, I've always felt you should always ask forgiveness before you ask permission as a general rule in life, okay? <laughs> um, and we, you know, but I think that what needs to happen now in the European Union is all the central banks taking their instruction from the European Central Bank, realising that it's their job to monetize everything. That's yeah. the key. because that And that means issuing, for example, we spoke last week, 100-year, zero-rate bonds, etc. Yeah, it yeah. also means Germany and Holland realizing that in order for Europe to make this as painless as possible in the circumstances, we have to issue these corona bonds, these mutualized bonds, which is basically yeah. means that we all have to pool our resources and borrow together. The Germans and the Dutch don't like this because I can kind of understand where they're coming from because they feel the Italians and the Spaniards, particularly the Italians, will just borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow. But their fear is that, you know, the Italians want a German lifestyle but aren't prepared to work for it, okay? So the German, the Italians want, for example, the, uh, the Mercedes car or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But they're not prepared. So basically they have, the Italian prosperity for Germans is rented, not earned. Yeah. And by that I mean when they can't earn the lifestyle, they go and borrow and they rent from the future, right? And that's the big German fear. And I can kind of understand a little bit of that, that fear of the Southern Europeans. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, years ago, a friend of mine who works at the ECB, a German fellow, during the 2008 crisis, he was on the phone to me and he was, because this is the kind of northern German view of the yeah. world. And he, and he says to me, he looked at me, he says, oh my God, everybody in a problem. Look, you have Ireland, you have Portugal, you have Spain, you have Italy. It's all you Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, that I was of course it is. true, man. actually. I, like, I said, of course it is, man. I said, have you never heard of confession? That's the greatest sacrament ever, ever invented. You fucking go in, you say, Father, I didn't mean to do it, man. I swear to God, four, five. So, I mean, confession is a defaulter's charter, okay? If you think about it, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's deep. It's actually deep in our psychology, you know? So, I mean, so I look, you know, I'm having a laugh now, but I actually, I can understand the German reticence. And Finns, they call it the new Hanseatic League, you know, the, yeah. the Dutch and the Germans. and, and Right, but if they want the European Union to remain intact, 
they will need to help the Italians and the Spaniards. But the Germans are taking the view, I would say, it's both economic and it's health, right? The Germans are taking the view that this pandemic will pass, right? That the worst of this will be over by the end of the summer. But if you start mutualizing bonds now, that is a permanent consequence. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So so let's look at things, because it's easy, let's look at things from their eyesight. So what they're probably thinking is, okay, this is going to pass, yes, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, all France as well, definitely France as well, will need to spend huge amounts of money. Yes, we'll probably need to entertain monetizing everything, i.e. paying for it with the central bank. Yes, we might also need to increase the, the amount of bonds issued in order to have that accounting idea that you have an IOU on one side of the balance sheet and money in the other, all mm. that sort of stuff. And they might think, you know what? That's temporary because this will pass. Yeah. But changing the laws of finance, that's permanent. So I can see the game they're playing, but I think it's very risky. And it's very risky because Southern Europe needs help. And the European Union must be about giving help to the guy who needs it. Yeah, of course. Well, I thought that was the whole the purpose of it. You yeah, know. I think it should be. But I think the Germans are worried because they're surrounded on the eastern side as well by very illiberal states, yeah. Poland, Hungary, all these guys using the crisis to become less liberal, not more liberal. And so I think the Germans are naturally feeling a bit hemmed in by the whole thing. And they have been very successful, it seems, in reducing their death rate in the pandemic due to incredible testing and planning and all that. So I can understand their position, but I also think that European solidarity must win this particular battle. That's my sense. But to answer your point, John, therefore, the European Union needs to be stronger in this battle. Yeah. Now, prob- the problem for us in Ireland is sometimes is we end up reading the British press. And the British press, the best way to lose money on Europe, as I've always said, is read the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> they don't, right? They don't understand a thing about the European Union, right? right? Because they believe that at some stage, the European Union will collapse. It's only a matter of time and they'll be right. So their view of the world is all about proving themselves right in the end game, rather than analysing what's in front of their nose. And what's in front of their nose is people don't give a shite about Brexit, Okay, It's over. Europeans have moved on for much bigger problems. The Brits can frankly go and swim as far as the Europeans are concerned. And they will protect the political capital that the European Union has devoted to the project since 1956, when you had the Treaty of Rome, which kicked the whole thing off, 1956-57. Yeah. That ain't going to go away. So I think, I think the European project will be not only saved, but maybe enhanced, but Germany and Holland might have to take a small bit of a financial bath to do that. Yeah, well, that might be the cost of it for them. But yeah. actually, you know, it is one thing that Brexit has disappeared but maybe we should come back, revisit that in the next couple of weeks and see where we're at with that. But in the yeah, meantime... It has disappeared, John, but you know what, what worries me is the hangover from Brexit, we won't get onto it this, is uh, Ireland, North and South, having two different pandemic approaches in the health space. Yeah. And the Northerners, particularly the... the it all splitting along orange and green lines. That's 
very worrying. My uh, sister-in-law works in the Ulster Hospital in Belfast. Mm. And she said they're terrified. She said they're not prepared. They don't have the right equipment. And they're not getting any, any messaging properly. You know the way... Yeah. You know, so if you, I've if you heard this before, to, actually, yeah. They, they don't, they don't, that's just up the road in Belfast. They, they're, they're not sure. They said, like, at least um, down south, as they said, as far as they call us Mexicans, people <laughs> who live south of the border. <laughs> oh, you, you guys down there in Mexico? <laughs> hey, Mexicans are getting their right. So my, my brother-in-law, see, Mexicans are getting your act together. Uh, so us Mexicans, right, but uh, who live south of the border. But I, that's... Let's come back to that, but it is an issue. Yeah. And it, it, it could have quite significant ramifications in the next few weeks. Well, listen, speaking of uh, Mexico and kind of developing world, they are taking a completely different approach to managing this, but they're not being helped by the likes of Bolsonaro in Brazil or Maduro in Venezuela. The worst than Trump denying COVID deniers and they're running out and encouraging people to meet and shake hands and live a normal life, yeah. as it were. Let's look at this, because I think this is the catastrophe that is coming that we haven't really appreciated, which is that although the virus does not recognise rich and poor in terms of the host, in terms of the victim, yeah. wealth and poverty will totally determine how catastrophic this pandemic is. So let's look at the pandemic itself. The pandemic is what they call a growth disease. Growth diseases are diseases like mumps and measles and flu, and they're characterised, John, by four distinct characteristics. One is they spread very, very quickly. They emerge quickly, they spread quickly, and they go from sick person to healthy, to that person gets sick, that person becomes a carrier, that person passes it on. So very, very quick transmission. But number two is they are acute illnesses. And by that, I mean they don't last long. You get sick very quickly and you get sick for a short period of time. Yeah. And number three, the outcomes are you either recover or you don't. There's no in-between, right? And number four is the people who recover become immune for a long period, not for life, but for a long period of time, okay? And number five is they are only unique to humans. This is really interesting. Yeah. Even though originally they come from domesticated animals, the actual disease is unique to humans. So if you're standing back and you're looking and say, this happens very, very, very quickly. And what happens in a contagious disease is the disease will tend to destroy itself by the fact that when it's most virulent is when the susceptible population is biggest, people who don't have it. And then lots and lots of people get it and those people recover, the majority of those people recover and they become immune and ultimately the disease dies itself. That's what we know happens. Yeah. That's the, what, you, what you call the path of contagion, right? So now let's have a look at these crowd diseases. What they love, John, is they love a crowd. They love a city. Yeah, of course. They love built up places. They love places where people are living on top of each other. Look at the developing world. Over the last 20, 25 years, the single biggest socioeconomic phenomenon in the developing world has been the explosions of what's called megacities. So if you look at a map of the world, let's say in 1950, all the megacities were New York and London and Paris yeah. and yada yada, right? They were in our world. Now our big cities are small cities in comparison to cities in Bangladesh, cities in Mexico, cities in Africa, cities, of course, in China and in Asia, right? So one of the socioeconomic phenomena has been megacities. A virus loves a city. That's the first thing. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely loves a slum. 
The virus loves a slump. Mm. I was in Old Delhi not that long ago uh, when I was in India. I mean, that is a proper, proper... It's not even a slum. It's millions of people living on top of each other. This is where a virus goes mad. So first of all, you take the developing world has got these cities, number one. Secondly, you're starting from a position... It's very interesting. If you think of how this crisis has started in, in, in the West, right? The virus arrives first. It makes people sick. We worry about our ICU units, so we close down the economy. We close down the economy. We borrow money through fiscal and monetary policy in order to put the economy into hibernation, and we wait for it to pass, right? Yeah. But the virus came first. In the developing world, the economic crash came before the virus in the last two weeks. So what happened is we shut our economy down because they're totally linked to us. Their economy shut down first before the virus came. So that actually something's happening, which is a different sequence of events for us as opposed to them. Then you think, okay, most of these economies survive on commodities, oil or agriculture, right? Unlike ourselves. Oil prices have collapsed from $60 a barrel to $28 a barrel, right? That means your revenue, and if you're like Angola or Nigeria or Mexico, your revenue has fallen off a cliff as an oil producer, Trinidad, Venezuela, etc., right? Also, the vast majority of Africa produce commodities, raw materials. Their price have fallen off a cliff. So their budgets, which were fragile to begin with, have now been obliterated. And if you think about it, the fall in the price of oil is phenomenal. Just think about this, right? Today, oil prices are $28 a barrel, okay? Yeah. There's 160 litres in a barrel of oil. Imagine 160 litres of water, how much it costs you. If you go to Tesco's, a litre of water, a bottle of water, if you're, if you're buying it, yeah. it costs about, a, about one euro. Yeah. So a barrel of water costs 160 euros, whereas a barrel of oil costs 28 euros. So water is much more expensive than oil, right? Now, of course, there's all sorts of, you know, wholesalers and whatever, but you get my point that something that used to be so valuable is now actually worth very little to the producers. Yeah. So those countries, and then you think agriculture. So for example, remember I was in Kenya recently, you know, the Kenyans, they export lots of cut flowers to the, to the West, to Monge, to all sorts of things. This is what the farmers do. Mm. And they put them on air freight in the morning and they're in the West in the afternoon and the evening, okay, and sold, right? Now the price, that's all stopped because the price of air freight's gone through the roof because as fewer and fewer planes are flying, the price of air freight is going up, not down. It sounds counterintuitive. Yeah. So they're totally without income. Also tourism, Right. Poor countries depend on tourism for their income. You know, Peru and Michu, what's it called? Machu Picchu or what's Machu it called? Machu Picchu, yeah. Machu Picchu and, you know, the, 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 the big uh, big sort of tourism and savannas in West, in of East course, Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. South Africa. Yeah. So all that is gone. So they're having a, a much greater shock. The disease is spreading faster because they're living on top of each other. Yeah. They've no resources. And just think of their starting position, John. It's awful, right? In Africa, the average country in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, spends 10 euros a year per head on healthcare. 10 euros. Right. In Ireland, last year, before this started, we spent per head on healthcare 4,980 euros. 
right? So compare wow. 10, right? So they have no sense. They're living in slums. Like the slums are in India, in yeah. Brazil, yeah. in lots of places in Latin America, lots of places in Asia still, really, really poor living conditions. That's where the disease is spreading, particularly in Africa. And do you remember I was saying to you, we were talking about poverty before, and I said an interesting way of looking at poverty is through the lens of time horizons, right? That yes. poor people yeah. don't have time, right? So basically when you're poor, your anxiety about money is today. You need cash today to pay your bills, yeah. to pay for food. When you're richer, when you become richer, one of the things that actually changes is your time horizon changes. So you can actually imagine as a wealthy enough person, September, when somebody says, this will pass in September, you can imagine what September looks like. Mm. If you're poor, you can't imagine what September looks like. You can't even imagine what next Friday looks like because you need money today. So all these people, they understand the need for social distancing. They understand the need for them being the carrier to change their behaviour, but they can't afford it. And they've no big government. They've no bond market. They've no financial market. They've no fiscal policy. They've no tax policy. They've none of this that we have. So they are going to be hit and are being hit in a way in which we can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. And and then it comes back to the Bolsonaro and the Monderos of this world. And you think, maybe they are, even though we think they're being really heartless, right? Maybe they are thinking herd immunity. Remember the thing the Brits yeah, were talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is our only option here because we don't have ICUs. We don't have the health service. We don't have the infrastructure. And they're thinking, maybe they're thinking, look, if this passes through the population and if we can keep the death rate down as low as possible, then maybe it's better to do that. And that's why they might not be COVID deniers. You know what they might be doing? They might be thinking, this is the only way of us to deal with this because we don't have the choices. Yeah, the no, I can, I can see that. And there, there's a logic there. Somehow I don't trust Bolsonaro. But anyway, I think he's worse than Trump. But uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, is he worse than Mike Pence, though? That's what I'm Oh, no, God, that's a good one now. <laughs> Pence or Bolsonaro. Ooh, you got me going there. <laughs> okay, so you see what I mean? So, But what I hope, John, is that the world sees that we're in this together. Yeah. That the, like, for example, another thing in the emerging world, right? Capital has left the emerging world. I'll give you the figures. $95 billion of capital has left the emerging world since... February. The reason is all investors, right? Yeah. Speculators, investors, whatever you want to call them, right? Investors are looking for the safety of the dollar. So they're selling everything they can in exposed countries, South Africa, Turkey, Argentina, Brazil, Indonesia, Mm. huge countries. They're buying dollars. All that money is flying out of these countries. So think about what they've been hit with. They've no capital. Their currencies are collapsing. Okay. Yeah. Their tax base is collapsing. Their export base is collapsing. Their people are getting sick. Their hospitals can't in any way deal with this. The virus, as we said, loves a crowd. So it's going through these countries like a dose of salts. And they're not getting any aid from us. Yeah. Any material aid. Yeah. Yeah. So they're stuck. They're on their own. And I think could be more interesting is if the world after this crisis, wakes up to realise we're actually in this together. Oh, okay, Mike. Let's just have a quick look at 
the world coming out of hibernation. What are the long-term impacts on us as a society, our attitudes, our economy, where we go from here? How different are things going to be? But also, this has actually reminded me of a chat that you had back in Kilconomics the year before last, I think, with that guy, Neil Howe. Do you remember that? Yep, I do. The man who came up with the, the term millennials. Exactly. Yeah, he's the guy who coined that phrase. And he was kind of looking at the cycles of generations over long periods of time. Yes, that's his thing. Yeah, and how they interact with each other and stuff. But his basic idea was that there's a big event that occurs about every four to five generations, 90 or 100 years. And th- those big events are usually a war. But the first generation after that a big event kind of live in a golden age of rebuilding and regeneration and restructuring and stuff. And they're a bit more humble and conservative. And the generation that comes after are a little bit more liberal. And you can actually see this like from the Second World War, like the 50s on into the 60s, which is a bit more liberal, etc. And each generation after that has a different attitude. They don't have a memory of that big event and they don't have an appreciation for it. So as generations develop, eventually a more ideological generation emerges as we head towards another event. Now, I'm probably not doing this justice at all, but you can actually hear the full interview because it's this week's Patreon episode that you can get on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. But anyway, but the reason I mention it now is that I'm kind of wondering if this pandemic is the next big event, which might lead to a new golden age. What do you think about well, that? John, I think you could be right. I think you could be right. Uh, look, my hope is that we will have something like the Bretton Woods system after this. The Bretton Woods was a conference organised in New England yeah. in 1945 after the Second World War. And it was largely sponsored by the Americans, but it was the brainchild of John Maynard Keynes, who, uh, in actual fact, John Maynard Keynes is on the course, the audio course. And John, I have been amazed by the reaction to our audio course that we put up online. Uh, It's been amazing. Hundreds of people doing it. Hundreds and hundreds of people doing it. And this week we're going to be doing John Maynard Keynes. And Keynes was really an extraordinary thinker. Yeah. Um, He, again, he's a huge, I'm a huge, huge fan. But one of his amazing things was the Bretton Woods Conference. So after the Second World War, they said, we cannot do this again. They set up the World Bank, the IMF. Think about all these these things. They were all set up. The IMF, the World Bank, NATO, the United Nations, the WHO, all these, all the sort of what we would describe, they also, the, the, the dollar became the reserve the currency of the world. Of the modern the whole world. architecture of the, yeah, yeah, was set up over a period of 12 yeah. months, right? In reaction to the catastrophe of the Second World War. Maybe, I really hope that we do that again. So we, we figure out that, for example, the developing world needs money. It can't simply be hostage to speculators and currency guys taking money in and out. It has to have, there's a thing called the special drawing rights where the IMF was going to give money uh, to the developing world. All these things have to be changed. You know, our whole sense that we reward fellas who work in hedge funds and live in Greenwich, Connecticut, multiples of the incomes, many millions of multiples of the incomes yeah. of paramedics and frontline workers. We'd have to change all that. Just, that sort of stuff has to change. But so my, 
my hope is, John, my hope, my optimism, and I'm always optimistic, is that this will lead to a global conference about global responsibilities, understanding that we're all in this together, that the virus doesn't respect borders, our cultures, our flags, our languages, and it travels. And if you want global commerce, which we do, you've got to have a global system of management. And I think this could be the upshot of the whole thing. And again, there are examples of history where pandemics change people's perceptions. Yeah. All right, well, John... uh, I have been using the lockdown to read bizarre things. And at the moment, I'm reading Dante's Inferno, okay? The Divine Comedy, okay? One of the great, great poems of the world, written in the vernacular, that is Italian. First poem ever written in... Where where uh, did you go with that one? Of of all the books you could have gone for. Of all the books. (laughs) uh, because, Because I am very interested in the impact of the great Black Death on commercial society in the medieval ages, right? Oh, right. Okay, I'm go, trying on. To, go on. So I'm trying to look at times when pandemics hit, what happened, where they hit, who was most affected, and how it affected the economy of the region. Yeah. And one of the fascinating places is Florence of the early 14th century. So Florence is the New York it's, it's the New York of its times. It is the richest place, it's the most cosmopolitan city. It's got money, it's the world's financial center. They have yep. a currency called the florin, okay? And the florin is the dollar of the time and everybody wants it and everyone wants to trade it. And then of course you have this extraordinary situation where Florence, unlike Rome, unlike the rest of feudal Europe, is a free republic. So a free man can turn up there and make his crust, a bit like the American dream years ago going to New York where we went when we were kids, okay? So Florence is this cosmopolitan place. It's full of Franks and it's full of Jews and it's full of Italians who weren't Italians at the time. They were, they, they, that wasn't a constitution. It's full of Cypriots, it's full of Lebanese, it's full of Egyptians, it's full of Arabs, full of Persians. Everyone is there. So it's good. It's a, it's a melting pot. It's mm, the first mm. real melting pot. Why? Because it's very, very wealthy and people want to go there and it's free and open and it's not run by a king. So basically you can be a citizen and you can, you can make good of yourself there. Yeah. So it's an amazing place, right? And of course, the the Florentines are, their main thing is banking. So this is the most cosmopolitan place in the world since the fall of the Roman Empire. So the entire Dark Ages is over. So the the empire falls in the 4th century, the 5th century AD. Uh, The Dark Ages, the Huns and the Lombardies and all these people coming down from both the steppe and from Germany to destroy the Roman Empire. And then you've got this awful period where nothing happens and these tribes are scrapping all the time. Yeah, Charlemagne was was a a big player around that time, around the 8th century, 9th century. He had a big scrap with the Lombardies. Well, it's funny funny you mention the Lombardies because the Lombardies were originally a Hun, a, a Germanic tribe, a very warlike tribe. But after, right. a couple, after a few centuries, this carry on. They got a bit bored of it. You know, scrapping gets a bit boring after a while, you know. <laughs> so they started doing other things. It's an interesting you say Lombard. Why do you think, for example, the Bank of England is on Lombard Street? And why do you think the English, the German base rate, the base rate of interest in Germany is called the Lombard rate? The really? reason it is, is the Lombardies were bankers. 
they were the first Italian bankers. They were from Lombard, which is why the Bank right. of England is on Lombard Street, because the Lombardies were in England years and years ago in the 10th century trading money. And wow. of course, then, when Florence becomes a republic, lots of Lombardy guys say, screw this, I want to go and live in a place where I can be free. So they yeah. come down. So you've got all this going on, right? And this is on the eve of the bubonic plague. The right. most exciting city in the world and the most exciting city since the end of the Roman Empire. Okay? Right. Uh, so because it's metropolitan and cosmopolitan, they're trading with everybody, the Florentines didn't have any navy because it's landlocked. So they depended on the Genovese, the people from Genoa, to do their trading for you. And the yep. Genovese were an amazing trading crowd. Christopher Columbus came from Genoa, right? Right, so, right, yeah, an yeah. Amazing trading trading city, okay? Now, of course, at the time, they were all over the place. They were they were trading in Alexandria, in Constantinople, in Beirut, etc. Now, most Irish people think of Genoa. We think of Paki Bonner saving that mm-hmm. crucial mm-hmm. penalty against the Romanians yeah. Yeah, in well, the 1990 World Cup. That's all that matters, really, about all that matters. <laughs> Dave O'Leary sent your man the wrong way and all that sort of stuff. But <laughs> before that, there was a period the Genovese were even more important for the world uh, when they weren't launching the Irish soccer team. But when you and say the world, was, this is just around the Mediterranean. Yeah, but they were hugely important. They were trading with the Spaniards, with the Portuguese. Yeah. The Genovese were really, really clever people, right? And they were trading in the east, because the east was where all... That's why Marco Polo, you know, in, 17, in 1270, he didn't go to the west. He went east, because east was where all the action was, right? Right. And in the east, the Genovese set up trading outposts, little sort of trading entrepots, which they manned. And they were like little trade... Like, 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 like kind of free trading zones, right? Mm. And they'd have a garrison, and they'd man that, right? And, of course, then they'd be constantly in scraps with the local hardshaws, Right. And the Harchaws over in that neck of the woods were the Tartars. And they were a pretty serious bunch. And they were basically descendants of, you know, uh, if, you go, if you go back far enough, yeah. we're talking Genghis Khan, we're talking... The, you yes, know, of course. The yeah. Mughal, all, all, so serious fuckers. You don't want to be messing with these lads, right? Yeah. And the Genovese were trading with them in a city called Taffa, which is now up where beyond Crimea on the Russian side of the Black Sea, right? Very far okay. away. Yeah. Now, at the time, when you're trading with people, you're meeting strangers you've never met before, you're being infected with diseases you've never seen before, mm. and you've no immunity to, because you've never been out there, right? So think about what was happening, right? And in the early 14th century, we had extraordinarily bad weather all over Europe and all over the steppe, right? And this had a profound impact in the following way, that the rat population of the steppe, which used to be fine rummaging around the steppe, because they ran out of food, because of the extreme weather, they started coming into these cities, these trading ports, right? And they brought with them the flea that carried the bubonic plague. Right. And the Tartars were besieging this Genovese outpost at the time, and the Genovese were doing quite well, but the Tartar soldiers started to all get the bubonic plague. They'd never seen this before. Yeah. And it was the sores in your groin and under your arms, it goes black, and then you get pneumonia, and you die, you die in about three or four days. Yeah. So the Tartar army is being destroyed by this. So the Tartar commander says, well, screw this, if our lads are dying, we're going to infect these Italians, these Genovese, in their walled city. So they catapult dead bodies 
over the wall into the city. Right. right. It's, just, it's an early form of biological warfare. Think yeah, about it. I suppose That's it what is. it is, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they catapult these dead bodies. The dead bodies are infected. The, inf- the fleas and the rats, the fleas jump around. Think about what's happening, right? The dead bodies then pass this onto the Genovese. Yeah. The Genovese start to die. But of course, like the COVID, it doesn't present itself straight away. So you can be a carrier for a while before the disease presents itself. Right. The Genovese commander sees some of his soldiers die and says, we're getting out of here. And think about these are people who believed in God and they believed in, you know, that this was a sign from God and all this. So they scarper, they get into their boats and they head back to Genoa, right? With their dead, but with their infected. This is the most important thing, with their infected people and with the rats that were hanging out in the hull of the ships who were also carrying the disease. They arrive in Italy. And what do we know about crowd diseases? They're very virulent. They're very acute. They travel quickly and they spread widely. Yeah. By the spring and early summer of 1347, the disease arrives in Florence. And it's exactly, it does to Florence exactly what it's doing to New York because it's unprepared. It has a sense of its own superiority because it's rich. Yeah. The people are living on top of each other in very, very built up areas. In fact, they were the world's first skyscrapers the Florentines had, okay? And the city is destroyed. Now, the reason I'm interested in all this is I'm reading my Dante's Inferno which is written just before this happens. So you get a snapshot of the city before it's attacked by a pandemic. And it's an extraordinary place. But what happens thereafter? The city loses about a third of its population, decimated. Yeah. But two great poets emerge. Boccaccio, who wrote the Decameron, which was about people fleeing the city and going up, and the stories they told each other when they were actually fleeing the city. And Petrarch, the great Latin poet, Italian poet. And what they start writing about was humanism. It's called Renaissance humanism. They start writing about, well, maybe this God stuff isn't that important. Maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there's science. Maybe we have some sort of explanation of the pandemic. Okay, right. They also start, very interestingly, because the population collapses, the working population collapses, that means the people who remain end up actually seeing a massive increase in their wages, right? Because there's not enough workers around. So the fewer workers go up, wages go up. They start to think, well, hold on a second, my wages are going up. I want a stake in this thing. I'd like to live like the nobleman. I'd like to live like the merchant. I'd like to live... And there's the first ever proletarian revolution about 15 years after the bubonic plague called the Chumpy Revolution, which, is, which was basically a revolution of not so much the proletariat, but the actual tradesman and the guildsman. It's like a middle... What, sorry, a what did you call it? Chumpy. Chumpy was the name of this. Chumpy. And it was like, it was like a, middle, a lower middle class revolution, which is most revolutions right. are. As I've always said that our 1916 yeah. one was a Christian brother revolution. Same sort of carry on, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I do remember that. it starts to feed humanism. Humanism leads to the Renaissance and you change in art and you change in philosophy and in thinking and in learning and you begin to put the man at the centre of yeah. this etchy homo, you know, 
Nietzsche's idea, behold the man. You put the man at the centre of everything, which is, you know, why Michelangelo's, you know, Davide is a bloke. He's not a picture of God. He's a picture of a man. And suddenly you get this whole change. So the Renaissance and the idea of humans trying to answer dilemmas of the world through the image of humanity comes directly from the change in thinking, which was precipitated by the calamity that was the Black Death, which struck the New York City of its time, Florence, worse than everywhere else, and actually came from the Wuhan of its time, which was the trading outpost in Tatarstan in Asia, exactly as happened here. It was trade with China and people coming and going and involving themselves with people they'd never met before, carrying diseases they'd never seen before with no immunity. It's exactly the same story. But the upshot, and here is the optimistic side, is that the Black Death led to an extraordinary renaissance in human thinking and a figuring out of a different world and a different possibility and a different way of living. And my hope is that this pandemic will lead to a similar renaissance in human thinking about how we deal with each other in the knowledge that the pandemic has proven that we're all living on this small planet together. You're here. Now, before we let you go, let's talk about the audio course. I've been amazed that hundreds of people have signed up to it over the last couple of days, which is fantastic. It's never too late to learn economics. It is an easy thing to learn. There's no bad pupils or students. There's only bad teachers and people who try to make it more complicated than it is. So if you want to learn economics with me, with us, with the whole tribe, the whole gang, have a look at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. You'll find us there and we're going to learn economics together. <laughs>